Hey, it's Mike Halford from the Halford and Bruff Podcast. One, thanks for downloading. Two, thanks for listening. Three, why not leave a review while you listen to the podcast? And now, back to the show. 704 on a Wednesday. Not just any Wednesday. What Wednesday is it, Greg? The 21st of September. Good pull. You are listening to the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Hour two underway. Hour two of the program brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. There are three dealerships to serve you better. North Shore Acura, Acura of Langley, and Burrard Acura on Terminal Avenue. We got A-Dog grooving back there. Is it the last day of summer or something today? Did we? It's the first day of fall. First day of fall. I thought that was tomorrow. Yeah. See, this 20- is where we've See, had this, this discussion. Where we struggled. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, sometimes it's the 21st, sometimes it's the 22nd. Yeah. They got to no, just pick a day. There's no actual scientific answer. I think Earth, Wind, and Fire gave us the answer. That's can, true. Can I just go on the record that uh, this weather that we've had this week the best. Yeah, it's great. Like it, you you can't top this. Yeah, if, no. see, this if this is, if summer this was like perfect. this all summer, yes, I would perfect. like that season. Yeah. This is perfect. I even like that it gets a little chilly at night. Yeah, it's nice. A little crisp at night. Yeah. You can sit in the sun without roasting in the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just get excited cuz it Dear, smells like Halloween's coming up. Okay. Dear God, <laughs> this weather all the time. Yeah. It'll be gone in 2 days now that we've said it out loud. Yeah, there's going to be heat dome in 3 days. <laughs> Followed by a rain dome. It'll be great. Okay, we asked the question prior to going to break about which Canucks prospect are you most excited to see this year? Now, we said this knowing that there's not like a laundry list of candidates for which Canucks prospect you're most excited to watch this year. Here's the thing. That wasn't even the question. That I, I'm, I'm just big picture. Which guy are you most excited about? Sure, I'm not talking about on the Canucks. I'm not talking about... This season, just who who are you excited about? Klimovich. Okay, you've okay. Why? Because he looks good. I mean, he looks like he's very involved all over the ice. He seems to be decent defensively. He's good offensively. Reads his teammates well. Has a good shot. Seems to have, have playmaking ability. He's very f- physical. Like I, I just haven't seen anything yet. That I'm like, oh, this guy doesn't seem very good. So I think that I think he's definitely one of the candidates. Klimovich. Uh, the other one would obviously, or a few of the other ones would be. Uh, Lekaramaki, who was their first round draft pick. Right. Uh, in terms of draft pedigree, he is the highest. Right. Um, Jack Rathbone, I think we're still going to count as a prospect because he hasn't graduated to the NHL. Uh, someone texted in with Pod Colson and Hoaglander. I-, I don't count those guys as prospects anymore. I realize that Hoaglander c- could very well see some time in Abbotsford this season, especially if he doesn't have a strong camp. But I feel like those guys have kind of graduated from being prospects. Hoaglander's played 116 NHL games. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's that, that, those guys aren't prospects I've got a little bit NHL of time, players. I've got a little bit of time for the Pod Colson thing because he's coming up his true freshman rookie campaign. So you get to see really if he's going to yeah. fall in. But outside of that, I mean, he's, he's a full-fledged NHLer. I, I don't think we need to have a, like a vehement yelling at each other debate about what qualifies as a prospect. Shut up! Uh, someone texted in, I'm curious to see if Kuzmenko can deliver on the hype. Um, I, I mean, Kuzmenko, I, I guess you could call him an NHL prospect because he hasn't played any NHL games. Too old. He's too old, according to Halford. He's 26. He's let's let's start with um, Klimovich and just talk about our expectations for him 
this season, and we can run through a few of the other guys. Because uh, this is a guy that went to the AHL very young. Remember, the Canucks had a decision to make last season. They could have sent him to Major Junior. Mm-hmm. But they were like, eh, you know what? He'll probably just pile up points. We we, we won't have, uh, you know, we won't be coaching him directly if we let him go to Major Junior. Let's bring him into the AHL. We've got a very veteran-heavy team in Abbotsford, so there's going to be lots of um, good role models for him. He'll be close to us. This is, you know, isn't this the reason we brought our farm team close to us yep. so we can keep an eye on on our prospects? Um, I think his season was went totally as expected. Like it was a little bit up and down. He showed flashes sometimes, and then other times he was like, "Yeah, it's not the best," right? right. Um, and I know. I think Drance was discussing this on Twitter, although I spend less time on Twitter these days, but I kind of saw this. He's And he was talking about expectations for this season, and he was like, this season, it's not like it's a make-or-break season for Klimovich because he's still, he'll still be one of the really, really young guys in the AHL. He's 19. This season. He's 19. There aren't yeah. many teenagers in the AHL. I think the interesting thing, if you want to take a step back and look big picture, when we talk about the lack of NHL-ready prospects in the system and in the organization, which is why there's so few to look forward to at the start of this year, you could kind of make the argument that what they did last year with Klimovich was a small step in fast-tracking a little bit. Instead of sending him back to junior, you're like, you know what? Maybe let's throw him into the deep end a little bit, and we'll get his professional career, his AHL career, kick-started just a bit earlier. Because you know what that allows you to do is overseason or marinate even longer because he's going to have a bigger track record of American League games. There's nothing wrong, as the old um, Detroit Red Wings teams used to show. Remember, guys would sit in Grand Rapids for three years at a time. There's nothing wrong with it. You just have to kind of get ahead of the game and have a guy down there when he's 18. It's nicer to have a guy play in the AHL when he's 18, 19, and 20 than 21, 22, 23, right? I mean, that's kind of math there. It's always easier to uh, what do they call over ripen prospects or sure it's always easier when you're a good team yeah absolutely the NHL team it's, and you it's have way the- harder when you're not very good because the right. fan base just wants something it's like remember play the kids play the kids play the kids that was what the quote-unquote smart hockey fans were saying before it might have screwed up the Canucks yeah imagine it- if they had they had you know Jake Jared McCann Adam Gaudet all these guys that they wanted to, like even a guy like Ben Hutton, right? Just put them in the NHL for a little bit longer yep. uh, and let them go through their ups and downs away from the spotlight, yeah, away from the it. glare, away from the guys like us who are obviously going to be watching the big team close up. And it's just less pressure, and you can, you can go through those. It, it's so natural uh, for a young player to stand out in training camp because that training camp means so much to that player. The veterans have been through training camp before. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's almost reminiscent of the bubble yep. in that there were a bunch of teams that went to that bubble that were like, I'm not really into that. But the, the Canucks in that bubble were like the young kid at camp, like so excited Sleep to be over. in the playoffs, right? Yeah. So excited to be in this situation because it was a big deal to them that I think you have to acknowledge sometimes. And, and the Canucks management had this philosophy, like if you show up to camp, 
and you play well, then we're going to find a spot for you on the team. Which I didn't hate at the time. I got to admit, there was something about making a team on merit. Yeah. I, I, like, no, I'm, I don't. I'm not going to rewrite history and be like, what a bunch of idiots. I said, hey, if you show up and you're in unreal shape and you go out in the games and you perform like you belong on that roster ahead of some other guys, then you should make the team. There's something to be said on making it on merit. We're just having the discussion because the flip side of it is, yeah, but it's the preseason. Or, yeah, but it's early. What happens 20 or 30 games yeah. in when the reality sinks in? They're like, I got a lot to learn about how this league works. On Klimovich, I get that you're excited, Andy, and it's part because you have that youthful exuberance that I want to siphon out of you sometimes. Hey, Andy, were you excited about Goldobin? Uh, I was, no, I don't remember being okay. stoked about him. Okay. I, was, I was curious. Because the reality on this, the reality on Klimovich is he, this is, he's going to be an average for the whole year. I mean, if, if he makes the Canucks roster at some point this season, it's either because a rash of injuries yeah. hit or they're playing out the string late. And mm-hmm. even if they're playing out the string late, you'll notice they didn't really bring Rathbone into the mix last year. They still kept him in the American League. They're like, do your thing down there. Rathbone, to me, is the only answer to this question. Because I think now is the time. I, he can go back to Abbotsford for sure. Well, it depends right? what question you're asking. I'm talking big picture. Which Canucks prospect are you most excited about? It doesn't have to be for this season. But it's for me, it's this season and beyond because all due respect to LeCaramacchi, I don't know when that's going to develop. That's not going to be any t- – I don't think we're going to see him in the NHL anytime soon. I don't think it's going to be this year. I don't think it's going to be next year. So yeah, I'm but a very, who do you think is going to be I'm the better – who do you think is going to be the better player? That, I, f- I feel like that that is the question. Yeah, and I, I honestly, all due respect, I don't know how Lekaramaki is going to pan out. It's not like he was a top five pick that you're like, we just can't yeah. wait to th- get this guy into the NHL. He's a mid-round, first-round pick. The chances of success, obviously, p- percentage-wise, drop. To Rat- Rathbone, we've talked about Rathbone up and down and left and right, but I think it's vitally important that you find out exactly what you've got. I think it's pretty exciting that Lekaramaki was a 17-year-old playing in the top division of Swedish pro hockey. I do, too. Now, what's funny is that this coming season, he won't be playing in the top division of Swedish pro hockey because his team was relegated this past season. And I was reading in The Athletic, and I th- I think they made a good point here. That might be the best thing for him. The old Al Svenskan. And relegation, this is what was written, relegation tends to result in high-profile departures which we'd expect will result in more minutes in a league that's better suited for the development of an 18-year-old player. Now, Lekaramaki played in that weird World Juniors tournament over the summer, right? Uh, He didn't look great, as expected. He's a young player. I wonder if he's going to be one of these guys that plays in three World Juniors. Could be. Because he's going to probably play on the team, uh, obviously, at Christmas time. But then he'd also be, unless I'm getting the math completely wrong, eligible for another World Juniors after that. And that's the one that I really think you should be circling. Sure. That's that World Juniors. Because even this upcoming World Juniors, he's only going to be 18. His birthday's in July. He's going to be an 18-year-old. It's really... um, I know there are the the odd ones, right? Like the odd really good players that go into the World Juniors and play well as an 18-year-old or even a 17-year-old in very rare circumstances. But it's really a 19-year-old tournament. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of the guys will get drafted, and and these are good players, let's say for Canada. They'll get drafted, and they won't make the World. They'll get cut. Yeah. Like guys like Nick Suzuki were cut from the World Juniors because they just – 
weren't good enough. So even though I will be excited to watch Lecker Mackey at this upcoming World Juniors, I, I'm, I'm not going to sit there and go, he has to be good. He has to be dominant just because he's already played in a World Juniors. Right, but part of the reason that you're going to be watching so intently is because with regards to Connects prospects, he's by far the most intriguing one and the one with the most potential. I think that's fair to say. He's been the, their only first-round pick in the last three years. So by that designation alone, he's going to be top of the class in terms of we got a lot riding on this guy moving forward because he represents most of the optimism for their prospect base. I mean, I think- I, all due respect to the, the third and fourth and fifth round picks that people are kind of intrigued by, he went 15th overall for a reason. I also think it's a litmus test in a way for the Canucks scouting department because according to a lot of accounts that I've read, they were much higher on Lekaramaki than the industry, as they call it. Sure, yep. The scouting industry. So did they get this one right and they outsmarted the industry or did they overthink this? Mm -hmm. And did they get overly intrigued with, for example, Lekaramaki's shot? I, you you have to be more than just a good shot, and the story goes. And again, this is this is uh, in the athletic that the Canucks saw more than just a shot. They okay. saw playmaking ability. Now that's also good too, but you have to be a complete player. So you know this is all about the maturity of a prospect because a lot of prospects are like this, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, that guy's a great skater. Or that guy has a great shot. Or he's big. You know, how often do we hear that? He's big, right? He's right. big and strong. But you have to put it all together. And that comes in the development stage uh, down in the AHL occasionally. Or, you know, you, you, you're talking with guys like now it'll be Michael Samuelson yep. over in Sweden who, who will watch his game and be like, hey, like, yeah, that's all great that you have a great shot. And even if you're a good playmaker – but I know what it takes to make it in the NHL, and here are the things that you have to do well. Uh, another prospect I'm excited about is the other Elias Pettersson because I think there's some real potential there for like a buddy comedy that we could pitch to the team or something like that. And he will also be under the tutelage of Michael Samuelson this year as he's in Sweden. I kind of want to switch gears here because there's, so we've talked about the Canucks prospect group, right? Uh, we talked about the pending UFA group for this season. Another group of guys that I want to focus in on is something that Pierre Lebrun from The Athletic brought up yesterday in a pretty interesting piece. The coaching carousel and the UFA coaches and the pending UFA coaches because, of course, one of them is Vancouver Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreau. Yeah. He does not have a contract beyond this year. That's not making him very exclusive company. There are a bunch of other guys. Lebrun really boiled it down to consider how many coaching changes there were after the start of the 2021-2022 season, how many off-season hires that they were, and then the disposability of all of these guys. Because they, you know, the NHL is becoming one of the fastest churn leagues when it comes to head coaching changes. Like, these guys do not get a long runway anymore. You could make the argument that if the Canucks hadn't have been as patient as they were with Travis Green last year, they could have dismissed him earlier, and maybe they would have salvaged that season that ended falling short of the playoffs. It feels like Bruce Boudreaux, despite all the good things that happened for the Canucks when he took over, still has to prove to Rutherford and Alvin that he can be their kind of coach. Agree? I would agree. There, it's, there is a bit of a prove-it element to this year. Yeah. 
both in terms of what he, he might have to prove to his bosses and then to everybody collectively, you got to prove that last year's one run was for real. There's that great debate, one of the debates and many debates in, on, on Canucks Twitter and wherever people argue about the Canucks, about whether or not Bruce Boudreaux was Jim Rutherford's guy. Because the people that say he was will point out that when uh, Francesco Aquilini was speaking with Jim Rutherford, Jim Rutherford wasn't quite ready to make a decision. I think he was actually under the weather. He was sick or something like that. Yep. And he wasn't sure if he wanted to do the job of president of Hockey Ops. There were still details to be ironed out. And Francesco Aquilini said to Jim Rutherford, he said, listen, man, I got to make a change because we all know what was happening to the Canucks right now. Like, I got to do something. What do you think about Bruce Boudreaux as a head coach? And Rutherford went like, yeah, <laughs> sure. You know, so is that is that giving him like he's your guy, or is that just going, yeah, do what you have to do in the meantime? Yeah, right, it was, it was definitely an unorthodox approach. You don't see it very often. Usually, it goes the other way. You hire the big guy in charge, the poho and the GM, and they mm-hmm. pick a guy. Again, it did kind of seem like, yeah, sure. You know, I've always wanted. He did say he always wanted to work with. Bruce Boudreaux, right? Rutherford said that. But it's but, not like he went through an interview process no. or or had this big long list of candidates and narrowed it down to Bruce Boudreaux as the one he wanted to target. So yeah. it was a bit unique. And then I think at the end of the season, as it became clear that it might not be an automatic, the Canucks are going to bring back Bruce Boudreaux, which I think really surprised a lot of people, including myself and a lot of the insiders that were that were based back east, that might have been just assuming like, oh, like the fans are cheering for Bruce. There it is. Like, obviously he's going to be back next season. And then they started looking into it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think LeBron wrote about that. He, he said it was, it was just a weird situation that ultimately the Canucks gave Bruce Boudreaux a choice. Like, you come back on the option year of your contract, there won't be an extension. Or you don't come back. Mm-hmm. I and will. Bruce Boudreaux ultimately said, "Okay, fine, I'll come back." That is like you, you could have a good you could have a good poll question on that. Was that a vote of confidence or was it not a vote of confidence? Now that's interesting because I do think that the Canucks have done everything within their power to give Boudreaux a real fair shot at this. So they almost brought back the entire team as constructed last year with a couple of additions, right? Yeah, they didn't tear it down. They didn't tear it down. They didn't trade JT Miller, who Boudreaux was, if it wasn't Thatcher Demko, that was his best player last year. I think the the rearrangement of the coaching staff, which very clearly was dictated by Boudreaux, he was the one that kind of handpicked Mike Yo. I think that that is a a nod from the organization saying, you know what, we're going to tell you what we'd like to see. And give you a chance to prove it because they did, right? They're like, you know, we, the defensive breakouts, which yeah. we talked about a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they they gave him a chance to. We're improve. really going to be watching the breakouts this year. Like, look they, at them go. Do they, they look crisp? Are they crisp enough? Do Ooh. the defensemen know what they're doing? I'm going to have a notepad with every time they flip the puck out, and I'm like, oh, oh, oh that's oh, not that's, good. That seemed a little unsure of himself. Then. Yeah, but but that's something that you know, in terms of clarity of messaging and deliverables, they said, hey, this is something we want you to work on. So they gave him the chance to do something with it. Yeah. Right. I think letting him have his own coaching staff is an intriguing one because remember when he came aboard last year, he was Brad Shaw was still there. He was a tra- holdover from the Travis Green. Like it was different, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You can understand how it would kind of be awkward and uncomfortable. You know, you got to you're, you're working with one guy, and then you got to work with another guy. 
you were th- part of what you thought was going to be one regime, and then another guy comes in. So I think that there's enough signs from the Canucks organization that they're giving him as good of a shot to do this prove-it year yeah. as anybody's. Like, there won't be any excuses. He won't be like, well, I came back in year two and they had traded JT Miller. Or I came back in year two and I still had the same coaching staff. Or I came back in year two and, I don't know, I got kneecapped by something or other. Like, he's got a full arsenal to work with here. I just have no uh, feel for the situation. Like, let's say the Canucks start out really well. Do you think Bruce Boudreaux will have an extension by Christmas time? Let's say they start out really badly. Will he get fired? And I have no idea. Well, this is where the landscape comes into play. Because part of having either your guy or not having your guy is often contingent on the other guys that are available. I mean, that's the big thing. It's it's great if you want to fire a coach. I I can fire a coach tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But you need to have a guy to bring in. So you go around the league. But you do wonder, haven't you wondered a little bit if Rutherford and Alvin have a list of guys that they, I I you guarantee know. you they do. Yeah. The question is, are any of those guys available? Because you could run into a Winnipeg situation, right? They're like, we're going to put all of our all of our chips in the the Barry Trotz pot here, mm-hmm. and then when you don't get them, you're like, fine, just give it to Bones. That's what you. But you just give it. That's it, right? I mean, that's how the the gig kind of works. Because look right, around the league right now, Aikens is going into his last year in Anaheim. Apparently, Daryl Sutter is going into his last year in Calgary on his contract. Lindy, he seems like a year-to-year guy. Yeah, right? just like take it. You just I'll sign something later. Uh, Lindy Ruff, who you I'm on my tractor right now. A very sneaky pick by you in the notes, suggesting he might be the guy you want to wager on first to lose their job. First fired, yeah, because Andrew Burnett's there now. Andrew Burnett's an there, and I always like to pick a team that has shaky goaltending. Yeah. What do you think about the goaltending in New Jersey, Laddie? Well, if Blackwood can come back and be healthy, I think he's a legitimate option. And, and I, I really, yeah. Vanacek. Vanacek, I'm a big fan of as well. I know Mitch Korn was huge, huge on him when I talked to him when they were both in Washington together. He thought he was the future of the Capitals. So I like it. I like the moves they've made. They haven't been, you know, lights out, guarantee they're going to be amazing. But I right. think they're cheap bargain bets that they've made. And and I really like Blackwood still to have the potential to be the number one. Well, maybe Lindy Ruff's going to be the coach of the year. Yeah. It could be. Who knows? I doubt it. But oh, and then uh, you mentioned Washington. Peter Laviolette is reportedly up on his three-year deal at the end of the year. Although apparently they're talking about an extension as well. So it's a really interesting dynamic there. Uh, but we are going to move along here. We're going to get into some golf. Presidents Cup begins tomorrow. Joining us to break it all down, Jason Sobel from Action Network. Uh, their golf analyst joins us next on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet. 632 on a Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. I forgot to do this prior to going on a break, but all of our Canucks preseason coverage here on Sportsnet 650 is brought to you by Black and Lee. Suiting up just got easier for modern suit and tuck sales, fashionable menswear, and same-day rentals. Ooh, same-day rentals. Visit blackandlee.com. We are in Hour 2 of the program. Hour 2 is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street 
in Vancouver. We're coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Time to talk a little golf on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. President's Cup gets underway tomorrow. Joining us now, golf writer for Action Network. You can hear him on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. Jason Sobel here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Jason. How are you? I'm doing great. Good morning, guys. How are you? We're good, thanks, and thanks for taking the time to do this. How excited are you to cover yet another tournament that has been engulfed in the Live Golf v. PGA Tour debate? Yeah, look, the golf itself is great to cover. It's just the everything surrounding before and after the golf that, uh, you know, it's gotten a little taxing this year. This has definitely been the most uh, wearing time, I guess, covering golf. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm used to uh, you know, covering birdies and bogeys. I mean, as I tell people all the time, I'm not smart enough to do anything else. And so that's why I watch other people play golf and I write about it and talk about it for a living. If I was smart enough, I would cover things like lawsuits and legal implications and all the stuff that's going on with Live right now, which, uh, look, we're trying. And we're, we're covering to the best of our ability. But yeah, it's a, it's a little more fun to be able to watch guys play golf instead of talk about what if and what abouts all the time. From a betting perspective, just how big an underdog is this international team that would have been a big underdog, and that was before they lost Cameron Smith and Neiman to Live Golf. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I just have to write a, a piece on that. The action network should be posted fairly soon. And I looked into it, and I, I know that, you know, sort of the inside the bubble talk is man, this would be a massive upset, one of the biggest in golf history. And, uh, certainly, I you know I don't doubt that whatsoever. But when you look at it from the betting numbers, the U.S. is a minus seven hundred favorite to win. Essentially, the implied probability there is that if they played, I believe seven times, they would win six of those seven uh, or seventy-eight. Uh, and same goes for the the international side; they would win uh, one out of seventy-eight, a plus seven hundred underdog, which sounds massive in terms of this. But you look back at biggest upset in sports history, which, you know, some people want to put it on that pedestal if indeed it is to happen this week. Uh, Buster Douglas was somewhere in the neighborhood of 37 to 1. Um, no one really is for sure U.S. miracle on ice, but they believe U.S. would have been about 10 to 1 against the USSR in the semifinals of the 1980 Olympic hockey competition. And so uh, you start sort of comparing it to those, those other events, and it's not quite as big an upset potentially is what we might see um, in other sports. In fact, it, it's essentially uh, the same as a 16.5-point favorite in football or a 16.5-point underdog uh, winning a game, uh, their money line total, what it would be. We saw just a few weeks ago in college football, Marshall defeat Notre Dame at a bigger number than that. So, uh, again, you know, I, I don't want to smirch any – uh, you know, sort of potential upset talk to the internationals and how big it would be, but I think we have to tone it down if we start talking about sort of biggest upsets of all time. How much do you know about the Canadian golfer that was a surprise pick in Taylor Pendrith? I know a decent amount about him. We actually had him on our show last week. Uh, seems like um, a very friendly, nice guy, and he's been playing some terrific golf. Had a very strange rookie season on the PGA Tour. What I mean by that is he was playing some decent golf. He actually contended for a title or two 
and then had a rib injury that he suffered at the Players' Championship, tried to play through it, wasn't able to. I believe he took four months off from golf, uh, really wasn't playing at all, not just uh, not competing in, in PGA Tour events, just wasn't even, uh, couldn't even pick up a golf club, go swing. He rested, he recovered, he came back, and when he came back, there was no time needed to get back into the groove. Uh, I believe he finished top 15 in each of his next three starts, and it, it was almost like something just clicked for him after that injury. And so he's been playing some terrific golf to the green. He is uh, one of the uh, – I, I think he's a, a tremendous up-and-comer. I wouldn't be surprised to see him win on the PGA Tour this season, which, believe it or not, has already started. started last week. And so uh, big fan of Taylor Pendrith's game. And like I said, he's like a really nice guy as well. Do you think Corey Connors is going to break through soon? I think everyone that follows golf, you know, the hardcore fans know what kind of ball striker he is. But right. still, when it comes to the majors, there's not a lot of attention given to Corey Connors. And, and, and even as a Canadian, I say rightly so, because he's never been in that position on a Sunday at a major where it's like, oh, he could actually win this. So I think casual golf fans hear the term ball striker. Like, what does that even mean? They're all, they're all striking the ball. They're all really good. That's why they're on the PGA Tour. That's why they're world-class players. Corey Connors is one of the best iron players in the game. And so that's what we mean in terms of ball striker. And so I, what I like about ball strikers on a regular basis is that uh, there's less volatility. What I, what I mean by that is essentially if Corey Connors is good at hitting iron shots, that doesn't go away from one week to the next. Putting is a little more volatile, and you see a good putter and reads the greens well, and put really well one week, and the next week the ball just doesn't go into the hole. But if you're a good iron player, essentially you're a good iron player pretty much every week. doesn't mean uh, you can't be off your game once in a while. But for the most part, he's going to be a very good iron player. Now, that said, the baseline is there. All Corey Connors has to do, I'm going to make it sound very easy, is putt better, and he'll contend for more titles. Gee, uh, that sounds simple. It's not that easy, of course, but we've seen players like a Colin Morikawa. I would put Connors, uh, maybe not in the same class as Morikawa necessarily, but at least the same type of player where, hey, he's a good ball striker every single week. You know he's going to be able to hit those iron shots, and it's a matter of the ball going into the hole. And, and Connors is essentially two or three good weeks away from, good putting weeks away from, having a couple more wins on the PGA Tour. If those weeks have to fall at major championships, can he break through and seriously contend, maybe even win one of them? Absolutely. He certainly has that talent. Has the President's Cup been damaged in a way by how dominant the Americans have been in it? Yeah, I think so, a little bit. And yet, I really have a hard time pointing out a problem without pointing out a solution. And I don't have a great solution to it. I know some people have thrown out, hey, why don't they make it a mixed event? with men and women playing together. Look, I think that would be great for the fans. Not all decisions in golf are about the fans, believe it or not. They're sponsors, they're TV rights holders. This is a big moneymaker for the PGA Tour. I'm not sure why they'd want to split the revenue with the LPGA if they didn't have to. And so I think we have to, as fans, think about the other entities that are involved as well. Uh, I've heard talk about, you know, hey, what if they let in a couple of European players? How cool would it be if Rory McIlroy was playing on – the international side. Yeah, it would be cool, but, you know, does that then take away from the Ryder Cup? I don't think the PGA of America and the DP World Tour would like it if their players were competing alongside the international team in the President's Cup every year. I, hey, look, maybe maybe the endgame solution here is good guys versus bad guys, PGA Tour versus live as the ultimate team competition 
President's Cup. The U.S. team is 11-1-1. That's some pretty pure domination. The internationals haven't won in 24 years. And so, um, you know, you'd like to see at least a better competition. Two years or, excuse me, three years ago in Australia, it was a two-point win for the U.S. team, and it was very close throughout. I think if we get some more of those close ones, it doesn't necessarily matter that the U.S. wins, but they can't have more domination. The last three on U.S. soil have been won by the U.S., at an average of five and a third points. And so that's just, uh, that's too much of a swing one way. I, I don't have a great solution to it, though. I wish I did. Uh, before we let you go, Quail Hollow Club. Um, I understand that the last three holes are affectionately dubbed the Green Mile. Can you uh, explain this a little further to me and the listeners? And then if there's a, have there been adjustments made for the President's Cup? There have, I believe, and I'm still getting my bearings here. Even though I've been coming here for a long time for the Wells Fargo Championship, but everything's changed so much this week. I believe they're now holes 13 through 15 this week. They've changed some of the routing on the okay. golf course. They've wanted to get some of these better holes, the more interesting holes, make sure they're, uh, they're being played. Because, quite frankly, in match play competition, you don't necessarily – have all the holes being played. You can sit at 18 all day. There's a, there's a great spot on 18 to go watch golf. Uh, that said, um, if, if the matches don't get to 18, well, you're not going to see a whole lot of golf. And so they want to ensure <laughs> that, uh, that they'd be able to play the green mile, that fans would be able, be able to see those green mile holes. So they've done some rerouting here. It's going to look a little bit different from what we see every spring at the Wells Fargo Championship. The rough is down a little bit. Uh, usually it's some pretty thick rough, so it uh, should be an interesting week. I, I do think conditions will be pretty scorable. A couple of drivable par fours should be very fun for uh, the players and for the fans who are watching at home. Jason, thanks for doing this. Enjoy the President's Cup. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. You too. Thanks. That's Jason Sobel from Action Network and Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet. Worth, worth noting, perhaps, that the next uh, President's Cup is going to be in Canada at Royal Montreal. Royal Montreal hosted the 2007 event, and I want to say, unless I'm just making this up in my mind, that was the one where Mike Weir actually beat Tiger Woods in a match. Um, the two th- the next one was also there was talk that it could be in Vancouver at Shaughnessy. Uh, Shaughnessy was eyeing that, but uh, ultimately it went to Royal Montreal. Of course, everything's been knocked back a year. Right. Like Shaughnessy was originally eyeing the 2023 President's Cup. Now it's 2024. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll watch a bit of this, and I'll watch the Canadians. I just think the Americans are going to dominate so badly that the singles games probably won't even be worth watching. Okay, let's jump back into the coaching conversation. We did get some text into the Dunbar Lumber text line, 650-650. It is the Smalt alternative. We had the conversation about uh, UFA coaches, so guys going into the final years of their deals. We've talked a bit about those odds that come out at the beginning of every season, who's going to be the first NHL coach to be fired. We've got a bunch of different candidates. Here's the landscape and what you have to remember. NHL head coaches, and it seems like year after year, they become more and more disposable. That not only is the coaching change the easiest way to shake up a room in a flat cap situation, there's also a bounty of guys that can step in, that have experience, that have done the job. It feels like there are always way more candidates than available gigs. Now, I know this isn't unique to the NHL, 
But it also seems like there's guys that have the experience and you can plug and play and gun it away. Consider this for a moment. Uh, the 2021-2022 NHL season started roughly a year ago at this time. right? So a 12-month span, there were 13 different coaching changes in a 12-month span. Every month, another coach was out and a new coach was in. That's a lot of flexibility. That's a lot of maneuverability within that industry. So it's not really all that crazy, based on history, to start looking at this and saying, hey, based on the way things have gone, it's fair to suggest that these guys could be on the hot seat right away, like before the regular season starts. It's just the reality of the situation. Furthermore, and I always take this example from European football, especially the Premier League, where it's so cutthroat and guys get, you know, you'll see managers sacked after four or five matches in charge, like Thomas Tuchel in Chelsea. There's a real fear of, is the season going to be frittered away? Which is yeah. what the Canucks did last year. Happened to the Canucks, yeah. Right? Can you afford to let a guy dig his way out of a hole? Or do you say, hey, we need to right the ship right now because if we suffer any more losses or lose any more points, we're going to lose the entire season. So all these dynamics make for a really intriguing NHL coaching industry. And moving forward into the season, who's going to be on the hot seat? So I, I've said that I think Lindy Ruff is a good candidate uh, to be the first fired. Um, just because New Jersey will have expectations this season to start getting better. Um, despite Laddie liking their goaltending situation, I don't think he was saying that it's like surefire or that it's going to be amazing, right? Um, and also with Andrew Brunette there, you know, you just you just kind of just put it together and go, if you're going to make a bet, he makes sense as a guy that they would be like, all yeah. right, let's do this now. Lindy, sorry, Andrew Burnett, you're the coach now, and you're the guy leading us forward. Because the New Jersey Devils have a bright future with some of the players that they have, but they haven't graduated to being a good team yet. Mm -hmm. Who sticks out for you? I mean, I was a bit tongue-in-cheek with torts yesterday because I realized that he's brand torts. If it go hey, here's the thing. Torts. Okay. They will side I, with torts. I was they will side about with this, torts though. before they'll side with their players. Uh, I was thinking about this, though, is that um, we've seen it before where it's just not a good fit off the bat. Just work with me here. Okay, I'll work with you. When he was in Vancouver, could the Canucks not have justifiably dismissed him after the locker room altercation <laughs> with the Calgary Flames? I guess, yeah. So it, the, the precedent's there, that, and yeah. he was in his first and year he only on the lasted job. a year. Right? So the precedent is there. I don't think it'll be torts. Everyone's got Sheldon Key for the top of the list. And I understand that it makes sense, but I don't see this Toronto Maple Leafs team faltering the regular season. That's what the postseason is what for. What if the goaltending is so bad? Do you put that at Keefe? Yeah, it happens all the time. I know, but in, in a, a job where it's like perennially you have goaltending problems, I feel like it would almost be Dubas that would be more on the hot seat in Toronto than Keith. The other guy I wonder about is Dave Hackstall in Seattle. Just that because could be a problem. when that when Hackstall originally got the job, I think a lot of people were like, like everything the Kraken have done, like, no, really? It was underwhelming. That's, that's your decision? It was okay. underwhelming. That kind of stinks. Um I, I'm sure Kraken management I mean, they're gonna balance between being patient long term. They obviously don't feel the need to be the Vegas Golden Knights and be this immediate success. 
right out of the gates. But I do think after you have a bad inaugural season, and the Kraken did, the pressure does ramp up a little bit. Yep. And speaking of goaltending, right, there, there's a team that could be sunk by its goaltending. It was sunk by its goaltending last season. So there's another guy. Instead of being jackals, yeah. um, let's take the question in a different direction. Of the new coaches, who do you think has the best chance of success? Ooh, that's a good one. I want to say, okay, who are we considering new? Anyone that was hired in the offseason? Right? Uh, yeah. So DeBoer yeah. in Dallas, Cassidy in Vegas, Maurice in Florida, Torts in Philly. Bo- I got to keep going. Bonus in Winnipeg, <laughs> Montgomery in Boston, Quinn in San Jose, Richardson in Chicago, Lalonde in Detroit, Lane Lambert in Long Island. I'm going to steal your That's answer. I'm, I'm sorry, but you got you had the right answer. I'm, I know I'm stealing your You're thunder You're just going to steal it? It's the right answer. Outright steal Paul Maurice in Florida. Paul Maurice in Florida is the right answer. You at least allowed me to say it. Yeah, but it's the right answer. I'm really curious about Florida, and I'm really curious to see um, if they'll be able to maintain what they did during the regular season. I think they're going to have the attitude of, hey, we know we can win in the regular season, but can we put together a team that can be successful in the playoffs? They're essentially going to go through what Tampa Bay did. And Correct. I think they're going to try and uh, switch up the – well, they already have switched up the mix of their group. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many uh, interesting angles about Florida from the new coach, Paul Maurice, who was a fairly popular coach in Winnipeg and yet quit. He quit the team. Although after what I've heard, maybe rightfully so. But you just don't see it very often, no, right? Nope. And, and he was so unhappy coaching in the NHL that he decided – you know what, This I can't do this anymore. This team needs a new voice, so I'm going to step aside, which you just don't see very often yeah. in pro sports because coaches know that like these jobs are nothing to just be like, oh, I'll get another one later, right? You never know. But Paul Maurice did, and now he goes to a Florida team that has seen, uh, well, a lot of change. A lot of change, right? You got Matthew Kachuk coming in, and that's going to be a major coaching job there because while he's an incredibly talented player and an incredibly good offensive player, there's also, he's a certain style of player and he's coming in and let's be honest, it's a big personality, right? Matthew Kachuk and the Kachuk experience. It does require a lot of oxygen to keep it going. I mean, that's just the reality. It's not a bad thing, but those guys exist and it's not just a seamless fit, right? Is his reputation, um, has it been earned because he hasn't been very good in the playoffs. Like, you would expect a player like him, the guy with swagger, you know, the guy that wants to play in the big moments, the guy that isn't afraid of the spotlight, hasn't been very good in the playoffs. I thought last year it was very telling that the cameras were all over Kachuk and the Kachuk tour. Remember the, the Brady-Kachuk friendship tour? The the cameras couldn't get enough of in game one, and guess why? Well, he had the hat trick Matthew there. Kachuk had a hat trick. Guess what Matthew Kachuk did after that series? Not much. You know what else happened? That whole narrative just kind of died. It just kind of faded away yeah. because it was be, it was hard <laughs> to put the spotlight on a guy that wasn't producing. And right? then he asked out. And then he was gone. And that was it. So I think Maurice has a big job ahead because it's going to be tough when you lose Huberto, lose Uyghur. There's just a transition period there. But they have the most – for me, that's the most talent that any guy is inheriting. Now, you could say – that Bruce Cassidy in Vegas is inheriting the most talent as a new head coach, but he has no goaltending. That's a huge problem. 
I don't care what you say or how much talent they have or can they outscore their problems. They have no goaltending. Like, Logan Thompson is sort of there by fault. I, is, I don't know, Laddie, if Logan Thompson wasn't ever seen as, like, a surefire, can't-miss goalie prospect. He went back to U Sports. He was a goalie. A he was a goalie prospect. Yeah. Like a lot of other guys. This wasn't, they weren't hanging the hopes that he would one day be the guy, and now he's forced into it. Hey, Laddie, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Is there an obvious goalie that could be traded for during the regular season? Let's say Vegas goes into the season and it's just not working out with the guys that they've got. Is there an obvious candidate that they could pluck out of another team? Obvious is the tough part of that question because what's obvious out there? I don't know. Like John Gibson is the name that comes up as, as the right. biggest goalie that's out yeah. there. But I honestly, if I'm looking to get a bargain bin guy, it's his goalie partner that I'm looking at, Anthony Stolarz. If you look at his numbers over the last couple of years, I've been beating his drum pretty hard, and I think he could be a guy that comes out and, and could actually be a starter for a team. I don't know if I guess we get that desperate to, to, to throw a flyer on a guy like that, but... Honestly, the two Ducks goalies are the guys I'm looking at going into the season. I think everyone in Vancouver is going to be watching what happens to the Vegas Golden Knights because that could be the linchpin team for the Canucks. Mm -hmm. If Vegas comes back and Jack Eichel's flying and uh, they look like the Vegas team of old and somehow they manage to find goaltending, and let's be honest, goaltending is tough to predict. Laddie, don't get mad when I say that. Mm. It can be tough to predict. I'm more mad at your Eichel. Oh, right, yeah, you don't like Eichel either. Um if, if, if they're good, then that's bad news for the Canucks. If they're not good, then suddenly you're looking at the situation and going, all right, Canucks got a legit chance of making the playoffs here. Because it might be them. It might come down. Who knows how it's going to ultimately end up. It could go, come down to them or the Kings. And, and I know the Kings are an up-and-coming team, but I don't think they've arrived quite yet. I think the Kings are good. I think they're going to be really good, but I could see them having a more difficult year this year because they're not going to catch anybody off guard. Um, and there's going to be the, the expectations now. Remember, last year, part of the Kings' success was they could kind of play carefree and loose because it was their that group's first chance to get in. Yeah, Doughty and Kopitar were there, but that group with all those young guys had never made the playoffs before. That was their first chance to go out and experience that. And now all of a sudden it's like, okay, uh, the time for losing is over. You're a playoff team now. Can you do it again, and can you go farther? So it'll be interesting to see what I, happens I, in L.A. I, I like them down the middle, too, with those veterans in Kopitar yeah. and, and, and Philip Deneau. Yep. I, I think we saw how good a player Philip Deneau was last season for what he brought to L.A. and what Montreal lost in him. I know uh, we got to go to break, but quickly before we go, yes. I'm stealing this from Gary on the North Shore. If there's a bunch of coaching changes this season, a bunch of guys get fired, do we see Travis Green coaching an NHL team this season? Somewhere. <sighs> I mean, he'll Is there be, a chance? He'll be on a short list, but there's a, it's a short list you know, that's got a lot of people on it. You know what? I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say it depends, and it depends on how the Canucks do. If the Canucks are really successful can, under Bruce Boudreau, and the narrative is baked in oh, yes, that yes. the problem was coaching all along, mm-hmm. then that's not good for Travis Green. Yeah. If the Canucks don't do well, and people are like. Ah, that was just a, that was a Bruce Boudreaux sugar rush, right? It wasn't Travis's fault. The team is structurally faulty. Then that would be good news for Travis Green. He could, I mean, he'll I, be cheering hard against the Canucks. In yeah, yeah, and and look, the, the, there were so many coaching changes in the offseason that there's not 
as many candidates that are available. Unfortunately, I think for Travis is that everyone's number one choice to write the ship is going to be Barry Trotz, right? I mean, that's the most obvious one. If something goes pear-shaped, you're making the phone call to Barry Trotz first, and then you kind of get in line after him. Uh, coming up on the Halford and Brough Show on Sportsnet 650, going to talk to Dan Murphy from Sportsnet. All things Canucks. It's a busy week, so Murph was in Penticton. Then he came back. Then he's got to go to Whistler. Young stars over. Training camp happening. We'll talk to Murph about everything that's going on. And then, of course, today, the Canucks are going to meet with the media ahead of departing to Whistler and getting all the physical testing and all that stuff done. So, Bo Horvat, Thatcher Demko, JT Miller, Oliver ekman Larson, and Bruce Boudreau are all going to meet with reporters today. There will be a lot of Canucks talk to come here on Sportsnet 650. It'll continue next with Dan Murphy right here on the Halford & Brough Show on Sportsnet 650.